0: Our text for today is from Acts chapter 6, which we heard a few moments ago. And as always, I encourage you to open up God's Word. If there's an app on your phone, or you brought a Bible from home. If there's one of our church Bibles near you, open up to Acts chapter 6, which is uh, in our church Bibles, found on page 914. Page 914 of our church Bibles. In 2019 here in the United States there was a survey conducted of 34 different Protestant denominations that's about 60% of the Christians here in the United States and in 2019 of those 34 Protestant denominations they determined that there was 3,000 brand new churches that were begun in that year. The problem is, that survey found, at least within those 34 Protestant denominations, 60% of the Christians in this country, 2019, that 4,500 congregations closed their doors forevermore. And this is Before, prior to a global pandemic, COVID-19, and we all know the devastation that that has had on so many congregations, not just in this country, but indeed around the world. The church, the Christian church, from a human perspective, seeing it as a human organization and institution, from our limited vantage point, the church certainly seems to be something that is so very fragile. From the external pressures that maybe we experience, a changing world and a changing culture, at least here in the West, but Perhaps even more so the internal struggles and infighting and battles that can take place within denominations or within even local congregations. I mean, even here in the Lutheran Church, our little world, and in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you don't know this, but there are kind of different sides and different groups, and there's kind of one side that says the most important thing we could possibly do is to stay true to God's Word and stay true to our Lutheran and biblical theology and our confessions and what we believe that's the most important thing and then there's another side who says no the most important thing for us to do is to strive to grow the church and to have that kind of success and to be fruitful and to reach out and quite personally I scratch my head and say aren't we supposed to do both can't we do both of those things And by the way, if you're newer to Our Father, newer to Christianity, maybe not even a believer here today or watching and worshiping online, this is a good conversation for you to hear and be a part of, kind of how we as as a family wrestle with these things and try to deal with these things. But even in a local, individual congregation, some of you know this very well. Maybe you've come from churches where there was fighting and division and there was discord and there were problems and there were hurt feelings and there were assumptions that were made and people have left the church and people have, have walked away. People failed to put the best construction on everything and failed to explain everything in the kindest way and made the worst assumptions about their brother or sister in Christ. Even at a healthy congregation like our Father, this sometimes happens. And I do take at least a little bit of comfort in knowing that all that I just described really is nothing new. It's all the way back here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. If you've been following the story, worshiping with us, we've seen some of the external pressure and the external forces, the apostles being arrested and being beaten and the persecution against the church. But here in this text, really for the first time, we see a widespread internal division and an eternal problem. Not eternal, but internal Situation that was happening says this, Acts chapter six, verse one. If you're following along, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, some have speculated maybe as many as twenty thousand now Christians in and around Jerusalem by this stage. It says as they were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists. Arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's the distribution of food to those who were in need. That here in Acts chapter 6, we already see a church that is divided, and we see a church that has different factions and different groups that now are grumbling and complaining against one another. You have the group here that's referred to as the Hellenists. That comes from the, you think of Helen of Troy, the kind of the Greek world, the Hellenistic culture. These were Jewish Christians, the Hellenists, were Jewish Christians, but who spoke Greek and culturally had adopted a lot of the Greek and the Roman ways of living and the ways of dressing and even maybe some of the ways of thinking. That was the Hellenist group, Jewish Christians, but had more of a Greek Philosophy and culture. Then opposed to the Hellenists were the Hebrew group of people and these were Jewish Christians who had maybe a more traditional Jewish or Hebraic way of thinking the culture and probably didn't speak Greek but spoke Aramaic. And these were the two groups. And something really serious was happening here. That this Greek-minded, Greek- In culture, Jewish Christian group, the Hellenists, it says, were making a complaint against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. This is a serious, serious offense and a dangerous thing. Widows in the ancient world, and certainly at this time in the first century AD, to be a widow was a desperate, desperate situation. The likelihood of being remarried was very slim. Your income was probably somewhere around zero. And at this stage, of course, there was no government or state welfare or security or help in any way. And so wonderfully, the church, motivated by the love and the sacrifice of Christ, knowing that Christ had called them to be brothers and sisters, they were serving, they were giving of their funds, they were sharing their resources and supporting their widows and their orphans and those who were on the very edges of society. It was a beautiful thing, but now here we see this division, we see this complaint, and the one side is ignoring the other side and people who are in desperate, these widows in desperate, desperate need. A serious thing. Division, fighting, perhaps a failure to put, as I said, the best construction and to explain and understand everything in the kindest way of why this was actually happening. Maybe there was some fear, there was some kind of racial or cultural bigotry happening here. We don't fully know. But what we do know is that this isn't simply a human situation that is happening, but there is a supernatural battle and a supernatural warfare that the church has an enemy, God has an enemy, you have an enemy, we have an enemy, who wants the church to be no more and this is an old old ancient tactic I think it goes all the way back to the garden of Eden it's called divide and conquer I mean even back in the garden of Eden what did Adam say the woman that you gave me Lord it's her, it's her fault and, and already you see a breakdown in relationships it's the old evil foe up to his old ways divide and conquer and destroy. And this is so serious that even Jesus himself In John chapter 17 he's in the upper room with his disciples they've had the last supper and then he prays recorded for us in John chapter 17 what is referred to as his high priestly prayer he's praying on behalf of the disciples and praying on behalf of all those Christians who would come after them and Jesus John chapter 17 verse 11 praying for his disciples the Apostles he says this holy father Keep them in your name, which you have given me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. And then Jesus goes on in verse 20. He's praying not only for the disciples now, but for all the Christians who would come after. He's praying for you here in this prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, that's the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This is what was on the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ the night before he died. This was his prayer that there might be unity and not division, that there might be oneness in his bride, the church. I no doubt would say this continues to be the prayer of Christ for his people and for his church to this very day that we would be one. So how then here Acts chapter 6 did they come to a resolution? Well, the church here that we see in verse 2 and following, what the church had was a resource of unimaginable power that was available to them. They had a resource that they put into practice, a resource that could solve all the problems of the church, and indeed, perhaps a resource that could solve all the problems in the world. What we see them doing here is this. They formed a committee... Yeah, they had a meeting. Don't you love meetings? I mean, we just love to go to meetings, right? This is what it says in in verse 2. It says, uh, so the 12, because of this division in the church, the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. That's their church meeting. And said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute. There's your task force your committee. Full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They had a meeting. They formed a committee. I'm being a little facetious. What is it that we see them doing here as they gather together? We see them first of all that they were united whatever their division was they were all united under the mission that Christ had given to them. That they were to go into Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses Christ had promised to them. That was their mission. It says they're devoted to the preaching of the word and to the service of those who are in need of the poor to serve and to love the poor and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. Christ. They are united in this, you see. They didn't come here divided because they disagreed about the color of the carpet or about what kind of coffee was being served at the coffee bar in the lobby or this little program or that little program. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. To misquote something from the past, they were united under the mission that's the first thing. But because they were united in that, we proclaim Christ and him crucified, they did have a meeting. They did form a committee. And in that, what are they doing? They are slowing down. They're listening to one another. They're seeing the other person's and the other side's perspective And they're loving one another and trying to come up with a resolution. It's so easy to just get mad or angry and leave a church. It's so easy to not have the difficult conversations. It's so easy to just make assumptions about someone without actually going and loving them and and actually listening to them. I think there's nothing more loving we can do but to really listen to someone and understand. And this is what we see happening in the earliest, earliest days of the church. And how were they able to do that? Where did that strength come from? Because these are, again, they're widows. It could have been so easy. How dare you, Hebrew faction of Christianity, ignore our widows? Who do you think you are? You think you're better. It could have been so easy to have it crumble apart. But perhaps they remembered what Jesus had said. We saw that in our gospel reading and Pastor Nate's kids' message today. Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, I'm going to give you a whole different definition of greatness and a whole different way of thinking about what greatness is that is completely the opposite of the world. For you to be great in my kingdom means to become a servant to all. He even says a slave to all. You want to be great in my kingdom. You want to be first, put yourself last. Because not even the Son of Man, God Himself, came into this world to be served. I mean, who should be served more than God Himself? God came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, for you. He gave it all away. Perhaps they remembered the story of what happened in John chapter 15 and 16 in the upper room before they celebrated the Last Supper. And Jesus Christ, again, God in human flesh, if we can conceive of it, the God who created all things, who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And what did he do? Do you remember Jesus got up from the table It says he stripped himself of his kind of upper garment and tied it around his waist. And he took a basin and a towel and he got on his hands and his knees and he washed the dirty and filthy feet of every single one of his disciples. This is God in human flesh. God on his knees washing and serving. This was a position lower than a slave. Not even slaves were expected to wash feet in this culture. And God is down on his knees and he's serving and loving them. And of course, this is only a metaphor of the cross itself. As we will confess from Philippians chapter 2. That Christ emptied himself, made himself nothing. He emptied himself on the cross of everything except for his love for you. Christ, the Son of God, emptied himself so that you can begin to be filled up with his love and his grace. We all know, as Pastor Nate said, what it feels like to be empty and drained And if we try to love and serve out of the emptiness of our own hearts, we can't do it. We don't have enough, but to know we have a resource of overflowing love, of overflowing grace. Oh my goodness, God serving me. We can begin to love and to be a servant to others that's in the church, that's in our own families and marriages. Well, Now, as we kind of wrap up here then, what happened to the church? What was the outcome? Verse 7 says that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And it says that even a great many of the priests from the temple became obedient to the faith. This is astonishing. The priests, whose whole livelihood, everything was connected to the temple and now they are leaving the temple because they think maybe the priests realized that in the church and the way the church was loving themselves, loving one another and loving the world, the temple where they served was that focal point, the link between heaven and earth. The temple was the where, place where God manifested his presence in the world and the priests are now seeing the Christians and saying, oh my goodness, now I see the presence of God manifesting itself, not in the brick and the mortar and the stone of the temple, temple but in flesh and blood in these Christians and the church which I said from our human perspective which can be so fragile from Christ's perspective is he worried is he sweating it unstoppable unstoppable Let me perhaps remind you of this from Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the way the whole book begins. This is Luke, the apostle, writing. He said in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book is the Gospel of Luke. He says, I have dealt with, I've written about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. So the first book, the Gospel of Luke, was all about what Jesus began to do. The implication is now his second book, the book of Acts, is what Jesus what continues to do. How? Through you and through me, through us today. And our Father, we can see it as a great organization or an institution. It's better to see us as an outpost of the unstoppable, all-powerful kingdom of God. And maybe things are declining in the West and in the United States, but there are other places in the world, in the global South, in the continent of Africa, for example, where Christianity is growing and growing and growing. In 1900, 1900 there were 8 to 9 million Christians in the continent of Africa. 8 to 9 million Christians in 1900. Today, 2022, there's over 500 million One in every four Christians in the world is an African. Praise the Lord. That the center of the church, where did it begin? The, The hub, the heart of the Christian church was in Jerusalem, but it didn't stay there. Eventually, the heart and the hub of the Christian church moved to where? To Rome. And then from Rome, the heart of the church and the center of the church moved to northern Europe and England, and then eventually to North America and the United States and Billy Graham Crusades. It does seem now that the very heart and center of the vibrancy of Christianity has moved once again to our brothers and sisters in the beautiful continent of Africa. Praise the Lord. Christ isn't worried. He's not sweating it. He's not afraid, and neither should we. Let me close with this. This is a, um, a letter that beautifully, we still have to this day, was written in 130 A.D. And it was a letter that was written by a Christian to a skeptic. It was written by a Christian to a pagan, a person who didn't even really know what Christianity was. 130 AD, these Christians are beginning to to grow and, and expand. It's like, who are these people? And this is called the letter to Diognetus, written in 130. Diognetus is who it was written to. And listen to these words as we close. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress and food and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. What is this saying? It's saying that Christians were ordinary people. But it goes on to say, that yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share their meals, but not their wives. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they're not understood, they're put to death but raised to life again. They live in poverty but enrich many. They are totally destitute but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. A blessing is their answer to abuse. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. What is this describing? It's describing ordinary people knowing and sharing extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. You know, from I said this last week, from a small group, about 70 peasants, marginalized, tiny little group, and just a little over 200 years, this has never happened before in the history of the world, And just a little over 200 years, Christianity became the dominant force and power and worldview in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't done because of military might and coercion. It wasn't done under stress of the sword or of penalty of death. How did that happen over those 200 years? It was love. It was this group that were a family that loved each other through it all and that loved their neighbor as themselves and loved and served the world all because they were convinced they knew it was true that the son of man god himself came into this world not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.